Chapter Twenty Nine of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christopher Most. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two: Paris and Prison, by Giacomo Casanova, translated by Arthur Machen. Episode Ten, Chapter Twenty Nine: Treason of Soradaki. How I get the best of him. Father Balbi ends his work. I escape from my cell. Unseasonable observations of Count Askin. The critical moment. Soradaki had had my letters for two or three days when Lawrence came one afternoon to take him to the secretary. As he was several hours away, I hoped to see his face no more. But to my great astonishment, he was brought back in the evening. As soon as Lawrence had gone, he told me that the secretary suspected him of having warned the chaplain, since that individual had never been near the ambassadors and no document of any kind was found upon him. He added that, after a long examination, he had been confined in a very small cell, and was then bound and brought again before the secretary, who wanted him to confess that he told someone at Isola that the priest would never return, but that he had not done so as he had said no such thing. At last the secretary got tired, called the guards, and had him brought back to my cell. I was distressed to hear his account, as I saw that the wretch would probably remain a long time in my company. Having to inform Father Balbi of this fatal misadventure, I wrote to him during the night, and being obliged to do so more than once, I got accustomed to write correctly enough in the dark. On the next day, to assure myself that my suspicions were well founded, I told the spy to give me the letter I had written to Monsieur de Bragadin, as I wanted to add something to it. You can sew it up afterwards, said I. It would be dangerous, he replied, as the gaoler might come in the meantime, and then we should both be ruined. No matter, give me my letters. Thereupon the hound threw himself at my feet, and swore that on his appearing for a second time before the dreaded secretary, he had been seized with a severe trembling, and that he had felt in his back, especially in the place where the letters were, so intolerable an oppression, that the secretary had asked him the cause, and that he had not been able to conceal the truth. Then the secretary rang his bell, and Lawrence came in, unbound him, and took off his waistcoat and unsewed the lining. The secretary then read the letters and put them in the drawer of his bureau, telling him that if he had taken the letters he would have been discovered and have lost his life. I pretended to be overwhelmed, and covering my face with my hands, I knelt down at the bedside before the picture of the Virgin, and asked her to avenge me on the wretch who had broken the most sacred oaths. I afterwards lay down on the bed, my face to the wall, and remained there the whole day without moving, without speaking a word, and pretending not to hear the tears, cries, and protestations of repentance uttered by the villain. I played my part in the comedy I had sketched out to perfection. In the night I wrote to Father Balbi to come at two o'clock in the afternoon, not a minute sooner or later, to work for four hours, and not a minute more. On this precision, I wrote, our liberty depends, and if you observe it all, we'll be well. It was the 25th of October, and the time for me to carry out my design or give it up forever drew near. The state inquisitors and their secretary went every year to a village on the mainland, and passed there the first three days of November. Lawrence, taking advantage of his master's absence, did not fail to get drunk every evening, and did not appear at the leads in the morning till a late hour. Advised of these circumstances, I chose this time to make my escape, as I was certain that my flight would not be noticed till late in the morning. Another reason for my determination to hurry my escape, when I could no longer doubt the villainy of my detestable companion, seems to me to be worthy of record. The greatest relief of a man in the midst of misfortune is the hope of escaping from it. He sighs for the hour when his sorrows are to end. He thinks he can hasten it by his prayers. He will do anything to know when his torment shall cease. The sufferer, impatient and enfeebled, is inclined mostly to superstition. God, says he, knows the time, and God may reveal it to me, it matters not how. Whilst he is in this state, he is ready to trust in divination in any manner his fancy leads him, and is more or less disposed to believe in the oracle of which he makes his choice. 
I then was in this state of mind, but not knowing how to make use of the Bible to inform me of the moment in which I should recover my liberty, I determined to consult the divine Orlando Furioso, which I had read a hundred times, which I knew by heart, and which was my delight under the leads. I idolized the genius of Ariosto, and considered him a far better fortune-teller than Virgil. With this idea I wrote a question addressed to the supposed intelligence, in which I asked what canto of Ariosto I should find the day of my deliverance. I then made a reversed pyramid composed of the number formed from the words of the question, and by subtracting the number nine I obtained, finally, nine. This told me that I should find my fate in the ninth canto. I followed the same method to find out the exact stanza and verse, and got seven for the stanza and one for the verse. I took up the poem, and my heart beating as if I trusted wholly in the oracle, I opened it, turned down the leaf, and read, Fra le fin di ottobre, ali capo di novembre. The precision of the line and its appropriateness to my circumstances appeared so wonderful to me that I will not confess that I placed my faith entirely in it, but the reader will pardon me if I say that I did all in my power to make the prediction a correct one. The most singular circumstance is that between the end of October and the beginning of November there was only the instant midnight, and it was just as the clock was striking midnight on the 31st of October that I escaped from my cell, as the reader will soon see. The following is the manner in which I passed the morning to strike awe into the soul of that vicious brute, to confound his feeble intellect, and to render him harmless to me. As soon as Lawrence had left us, I told Soradaki to come and take some soup. The scoundrel was in bed, and he had told Lawrence that he was ill. He would not have dared to approach me if I had not called him. However, he rose from bed, and threw himself flat upon the ground at my feet, and said, weeping violently, that if I would not forgive him he would die before the day was done, as he already felt the curse and vengeance of the Holy Virgin which I had denounced against him. He felt devouring pains in his bowels, and his mouth was covered with sores. He showed it to me, and I saw that it was full of ulcers, but I cannot say whether it was thus the night before. I did not much care to examine him to see if he were telling me the truth. My cue was to pretend to believe him, and to make him hope for mercy. I began by making him eat and drink. The traitor most likely intended to deceive me, but as I was myself determined to deceive him, it remained to see which was the acuter. I had planned an attack against which it was improbable that he could defend himself. Assuming an inspired air, I said, Be seated and take this soup, and afterwards I will tell you of your good fortune, for know that the Virgin of the Rosary appeared to me at daybreak and bids me pardon you. Thou shalt not die, but live, and shalt come out of this place with me. In great wonderment, and kneeling on the ground for want of a chair, he ate the soup with me, and afterwards seated himself on the bed to hear what I had to say. Thus I spoke to him. The grief I experienced at your dreadful treason made me pass a sleepless night, as the letters might condemn me to spend here the remnants of my days. My only consolation, I confess, was the certainty that you would die here also before my eyes within three days. Full of this thought not worthy of a Christian, for God bids us forgive our enemies. My weariness made me sleep, and in my sleep I had a vision. I saw that holy virgin, mother of God, whose likeness you behold. I saw her before me, and opening her lips, she spoke thus. Soradaki is a devotee of my holy rosary. I protect him, and I will that you forgive him, and then the curse he has drawn on himself will cease. In return for your generosity, I will order one of my angels to take the form of man, to come down from heaven, to break open the roof of your prison, and set you free within five or six days. The angel will begin his task this day at two o'clock precisely, and he will work till half an hour before sunset, since he must descend again into heaven while the daylight lasts. When you come out of this place, take Soradaki with you, and have a care for him if he will renounce his business of spying. Tell him all. With these words the Holy Virgin vanished out of my sight, and I awoke. I spoke all the while with a serious face and the air of one inspired, and I saw that the traitor was petrified. 
I then took my book of hours, sprinkled the cell with holy water, and pretended to pray, kissing from time to time the picture of the Virgin. An hour afterwards the brute, who so far had not opened his mouth, asked me bluntly at what time the angel would come down from heaven, and if we should hear him breaking in the cell. I am certain that he will begin at two o'clock, and that we shall hear him at his work, and that he will depart at the hour named by the Holy Virgin. You may have dreamt it all. Nay, not so. Will you swear to me to spy no more? Instead of answering, he went off to sleep, and did not awake for two hours after, when he asked if he could put off taking the oath. I asked of him, You can put off taking it, I said, till the angel enters to set me free, but if you do not then renounce by an oath the infamous trade which has brought you here, and which will end by bringing you to the gallows, I shall leave you in the cell, for so the mother of God commands, and if you do not obey, you will lose her protection. As I expected, I saw an expression of satisfaction on his hideous features, for he was quite certain that the angel would not come. He looked at me with a pitying air. I longed to hear the hour strike. The play amused me intensely, for I was persuaded that the approach of the angel would set his miserable wits a-reeling. I was sure also that this plan would succeed if Lawrence had not forgotten to give the monk the books, and this was not likely. An hour before the time appointed I was fain to dine. I only drank water, and Sordaki drank all the wine and consumed all the garlic I had, and thus made himself worse. As soon as I heard the first stroke of two I fell on my knees, ordering him, in an awful voice, to do the like. He obeyed, looking at me in a dazed way. When I heard the first slight noise I exclaimed, Lo, the angel cometh! and fell down on my face, and with a hearty fisticuff forced him into the same position. The noise of breaking was plainly heard, and for a quarter of an hour I kept in that troublesome position, and if the circumstances had been different I should have laughed to see how motionless the creature was, but I restrained myself, remembering my design of completely turning the fellow's head, or at least of obsessing him for a time. As soon as I got up I knelt and allowed him to imitate me, and I spent three hours in saying the rosary to him. From time to time he dozed off, wearied rather by his position than by the monotony of the prayer, but during the whole time he never interrupted me. Now and again he dared to raise a furtive glance towards the ceiling. With a sort of stupor on his face he turned his head in the direction of the Virgin, and the whole of his behavior was for me of the highest comedy. When I heard the clock strike the hour for the work to cease, I said to him, Prostrate thyself, for the angel departeth. Balby returned to his cell, and we heard him no more. As I rose to my feet, fixing my gaze on the wretched fellow, I read fright on every feature, and was delighted. I addressed a few words to him that I might see in what state of mind he was. He shed tears in abundance, and what he said was mostly extravagant, his ideas having no sequence or connection. He spoke of his sins, of his acts of devotion, of his zeal in the service of St. Mark, and of the work he had done for the commonwealth, and to this he attributed the special favors Mary had shown him. I had to put up with a long story about the miracles of the rosary which his wife, whose confessor was a young Dominican, had told him. He said that he did not know what use I could make of an ignorant fellow like him. I will take you into my service, and you shall have all that you need without being obliged to pursue the hazardous trade of a spy. Shall we not be able to remain at Venice? Certainly not. The angel will take us to a land which does not belong to St. Mark. Will you swear to me that you will spy no more? And if you swear, will you become a perjurer a second time? If I take that oath, I will surely keep it. Of that there can be no doubt. But you must confess that if I had not perjured myself, you would never have received such favor at the hands of the Virgin. My broken faith is the cause of your bliss. You ought, therefore, to love me and be content with my treason. Dost thou love Judas, who betrayed Jesus Christ? No. You perceive, then, that one detests the traitor and at the same time adores the divine providence, which knows now to bring good out of evil. Up to the present time you have done wickedly. 
You have offended God and the Virgin his mother, and I will not receive your oath till you have expiated your sins. What sin have I done? You have sinned by pride, Soradaki, in thinking that I was under an obligation to you for betraying me and giving my letters to the secretary. How shall I expiate this sin? Thus, to-morrow, when Lawrence comes, you must lie on your bed, your face towards the wall, and without the slightest motion or a single glance at Lawrence. If he address you, you must answer, without looking at him, that you could not sleep and need rest. Do you promise me entirely to do this thing? I will do whatsoever you tell me. Quick, then, take your oath before this holy picture. I promise, holy mother of God, that when Lawrence comes I will not look at him nor stir from my bed. And I, most holy virgin, swear by the bowels of your divine son that if I see Soradaki move in the least, or look towards Lawrence, I will throw myself straightway upon him and strangle him without mercy to your honor and glory. I counted on my threat having at least as much effect upon him as the oath. Nevertheless, as I was anxious to make sure, I asked him if he had anything to say against the oath, and after thinking for a moment he answered that he was quite content with it. Well pleased with myself, I gave him something to eat, and told him to go to bed as I needed sleep. As soon as he was asleep I began to write, and wrote on for two hours. I told Balby all that had happened, and he said that if the work was far enough advanced he need only come above my cell to put the final stroke to it and break through. I made him note that we should set out on the night of the 31st of October, and that we should be four in all, counting his companion and mine. It was now the 28th of the month. In the morning the monk wrote me that the passage was made, and that he should only require to work at the ceiling of my cell to break through the last board, and this would be done in four minutes. Soradaki observed his oath, pretending to sleep, and Lawrence said nothing to him. I kept my eyes upon him the whole time, and I verily believe I should have strangled him if he had made the slightest motion toward Lawrence, for a wink would have been enough to betray me. The rest of the day was devoted to high discourses and exalted expressions, which I uttered as solemnly as I could, and I enjoyed the sight of seeing him become more and more fanatical. To heighten the effect of my mystic exhortation I dosed him heavily with wine, and did not let him go till he had fallen into a drunken sleep. Though a stranger to all metaphysical speculations, and a man who had never exercised his reasoning faculties except in devising some piece of spycraft, the fellow confused me for a moment by saying that he could not conceive how an angel should have to take so much trouble to break open our cell. But after lifting my eyes to heaven, or rather to the roof of my dungeon cell, I said, The ways of God are inscrutable, and since the messenger of heaven works not as an angel, for then a slight single blow would be enough, he works like a man whose form he has doubtless taken, as we are not worthy to look upon his celestial body. And furthermore, said I, like a true Jesuit, who knows how to draw the advantage from everything, I foresee the angel to punish us for your evil thought, which has offended the Holy Virgin, will not come to-day. Wretch! Your thoughts are not those of an honest, pious, and religious man, but those of a sinner who thinks he has to do with Messer Grand and his Myrmidons. I wanted to drive him to despair, and I succeeded. He began to weep bitterly, and his sobs almost choked him, when two o'clock struck and not a sign of the angel was heard. Instead of calming him, I endeavored to augment his misery by my complaints. The next morning he was obedient to my orders, for when Lawrence asked him how he was, he replied without moving his head. He behaved in the same manner on the day following, and until I saw Lawrence for the last time on the morning of the 31st of October. I gave him the book for Barbie, and told the monk to come at noon to break through the ceiling. I feared nothing, as Lawrence had told me that the inquisitors and the secretary had already set out for the country. I had no reason to dread the arrival of a new companion, and all I had to do was manage my knave. After Lawrence was gone, I told Soradaki that the angel would come and make an opening in the ceiling about noon. He will bring a pair of scissors with him, I said, and you will have to cut the angel's beard and mine. 
Has the angel a beard? Yes, you shall see it for yourself. Afterwards we shall get out of the cell and proceed to break the roof of the palace, whence we shall descend into St. Mark's place and set out for Germany. He answered nothing. He had to eat by himself, for my mind was much too occupied to think about dinner. Indeed, I had been unable to sleep. The appointed hour struck, and the angel came. Soradaki was going to fall down on his face, but I told him it was not necessary. In three minutes the passage was completed. The piece of board fell at my feet, and Father Balbi into my arms. "'Your work is ended, and mine begun,' said I to him. We embraced each other, and he gave me the pike and a pair of scissors. I told Soradaki to cut our beards, but I could not help laughing to see the creature, his mouth all agape staring at the angel, who was more like a devil. However, though quite beside himself, he cut our beards admirably. Anxious to see how the land lay, I told the monk to stay with Soradaki, as I did not care to leave him alone, and I went out. I found the hole in the wall narrow, but I succeeded in getting through it. I was above the Count's cell, and I came in and greeted the worthy old man. The man before me was not fit to encounter such difficulties as would be involved in an escape by a steep roof covered with plates of lead. He asked me what my plan was, and told me that he thought I had acted rather inconsiderately. "'I only ask to go forward,' said I, "'till I find death or freedom.' "'If you intend,' he answered, "'to pierce the roof and to descend from thence, "'I see no prospect of success unless you have wings, "'and I at all events have not the courage to accompany you. "'I will remain here and pray to God on your behalf.' "'I went out again to look at the roof, "'getting as close as I could to the sides of the loft. "'Touching the lower part of the roof, "'I took up a position between the beams, "'and feeling the wood with the end of the bar, "'I luckily found them to be half rotten. "'At every blow of the bar they fell to dust.' So feeling certain of my ability to make a large enough hole in less than an hour, I returned to my cell, and for four hours employed myself in cutting up sheets, coverlets, and bedding to make ropes. I took care to make the knots myself and be assured of their strength, for a single weak knot might cost us our lives. At last I had ready a hundred fathoms of rope. In great undertakings there are certain critical points which the leader who deserves to succeed trusts to no one but himself. When the rope was ready I made a parcel of my suit, my cloak, a few shirts, stockings, and handkerchiefs, and the three of us went into the Count's cell. The first thing the Count did was to congratulate Soradaki on having been placed in the same cell as myself, and on being so soon about to regain his liberty. His air of speechless confusion made me want to laugh. I took no more trouble about him, for I had thrown off the mask of Tartuffe which I had found terribly inconvenient all the time I had worn it for the rascal's sake. He knew, I could see, that he had not been deceived, but he understood nothing else as he could not make out how I could have arranged with the supposed angel to come and go at certain fixed times. He listened attentively to the Count, who told us we were going to our destruction, and like the coward that he was, he began to plan how to escape from the dangerous journey. I told the monk to put his bundle together while I was making the hole in the roof by the side of the loft. At eight o'clock, without needing any help, my opening was made. I had broken up the beams, and the space was twice the size required. I got the plate of lead off in one piece. I could not do it by myself, because it was riveted. The monk came to my aid, and by dint of driving the bar between the gutter and the lead I succeeded in loosening it, and then, heaving at it with our shoulders, we beat it up until the opening was wide enough. On putting my head out through the hole I was distressed to see the brilliant light of the crescent moon, then entering its first quarter. This was a piece of bad luck which must be borne patiently, and we should have to wait till midnight, when the moon would have gone to light up the antipodes. On such a fine night as this everybody would be walking in St. Mark's Place, and I dared not show myself on the roof, as the moonlight would have thrown a huge shadow of me on the place, and have drawn towards me all eyes, especially those of Messer Grand and his Myrmidons, and our fine scheme would have been brought to nothing by their detestable activity. 
I immediately decided that we could not escape until after moon set. In the meantime, I prayed for the help of God, but did not ask Him to work any miracles for me. I was at the mercy of fortune, and I had to take care not to give her any advantages, and if my scheme ended in failure I should be consoled by the thought that I had made not a single mistake. The moon would set at eleven, and sunrise was at six, so we had seven hours of perfect darkness at our service, and though we had a hard task, I considered that in seven hours it would be accomplished. I told Father Bulby that we could pass the three hours in talking to the Count Askin. I requested him to go first, and ask the Count to lend me thirty sequins, which would be as necessary to me as my pike had been hitherto. He carried my message, and a few minutes after came and asked me to go myself, as the Count wished to talk to me alone. The poor old man began by saying with great politeness that I really stood in no need of money to escape, that he had none, that he had a large family, that if I was killed the money would be lost, with a thousand other futilities of the same kind to disguise his avarice, or the dislike he felt to parting with his money. My reply lasted for half an hour, and contained some excellent arguments, which never have had and never will have any force, as the finest weapons of oratory are blunted when used against one of the strongest of his passions. It was a matter of a nolenti baculus. Not that I was cruel enough to use force towards an unhappy old man like the Count. I ended my speech by saying that if he would flee with us I would carry him upon my shoulders like Aeneas carried Anchises, but if he was going to stay in prison to offer up prayers for our success, his prayers would be observed, as it would be a case of praying God to give success when he himself had refused to contribute the most ordinary aid. He replied by a flood of tears which affected me. He then asked if two sequins would be enough, and I answered in the affirmative. He then gave them to me, begging me to return them to him if, after getting on the roof, I saw my wisest course would be to come back. I promised to do so, feeling somewhat astonished that he should deem me capable of a retreat. He little knew me, for I would have preferred death to an imprisonment which would have been lifelong. I called my companions, and we set all our baggage near the hole. I divided the hundred fathoms of rope into two packets, and we spent two hours in talking over the chances of our undertaking. The first proof which Father Balby gave me of his fine character was to tell me ten times over that I had broken my word with him, since I had assured him that my scheme was complete and certain, while it was really nothing of the kind. He went so far as to tell me that if he had known as much he would not have taken me from my cell. The Count also, with all the weight of his seventy years, told me that I should do well to give up so hazardous an undertaking, in which success was impossible and death probable. As he was a barrister, he made me a speech as follows, and I had not much difficulty in guessing that he was inspired by the thought of the two sequins which I should have had to give him back, if he had succeeded in persuading me to stay where I was. "'The incline of the roof covered with lead plates,' said he, "'will render it impossible for you to walk. Indeed, you will scarcely be able to stand on your feet. It is true that the roof has seven or eight windows, but they are all barred with iron, and you could not keep your footing near them since they are far from the sides.' Your ropes are useless, as you will find nothing whereon to fasten them, and even if you did, a man descending from such a height cannot reach the ground by himself. One of you will therefore have to lower the two others one at a time, as one lowers a bucket or a bundle of wood, and he who does so will have to stay behind and go back to his cell. Which of you three has a vocation for this dangerous work of charity? And supposing that one of you is heroic enough to do so, can you tell me on which side you are going to descend? Not by the side towards the palace, for you would be seen." not by the church, as you would find yourselves still shut up. And as to the court side, you would surely not think of it, for you would fall into the hands of the Arsenalotti who are always going their rounds there. You have only the canal side left, and where is your gondola to take you off? Not having any such thing, you will be obliged to throw yourself in and escape by swimming towards St. Apollonia, which you will reach in a wretched condition, not knowing where to turn to next. 
you must remember that the leads are slippery and that if you were to fall into the canal considering the height of the fall and the shallowness of the water you would most certainly be killed if you could swim like sharks you would be crushed to death for three or four feet of water are not sufficient to counteract the effect of a fall from such a height in short the best fate you can expect is to find yourselves on the ground with broken arms and legs the effect of this discourse a very unseasonable one under the circumstances was to make my blood boil but i listened with a patience wholly foreign to my nature the rough reproaches of the monk enraged me and inclined me to answer him in his own way but i felt that my position was a difficult one and that unless i was careful i might ruin all for i had to do with a coward quite capable of saying that he was not going to risk his life and by myself i could not hope to succeed i constrained myself therefore and as politely as i could i told him that i was sure of success though i could not as yet communicate the details of my plan i shall profit by your wise counsels said i to counterskin and be very prudent but my trust in god and in my own strength will carry me through all difficulties from time to time i stretched out my hand to assure myself that soradaki was there for he did not speak a word i laughed to myself to think what he might be turning in his head now that he was convinced that i had deceived him at half-past ten i told him to go and see what was the position of the moon he obeyed and returned saying that in an hour and a half it would have disappeared and that there was a thick fog which would make the leads very dangerous all i ask i said is that the fog be not made of oil put your cloak in a packet with some of the rope which must be divided equally between us at this i was astonished to find him at my knees kissing my hands and entreating me not to kill him i should be sure said he to fall over in the canal and i should not be of any use to you oh leave me here and all the night i will pray to st francis for you you can kill me or save me alive but of this i am determined never to follow you the fool never thought how he had responded to my prayers you are right i said you may stop here on the condition that you will pray to st francis and that you go forthwith and fetch my books which i wish to leave to the count he did so without answering me doubtless with much joy my books were worth at least a hundred crowns the count told me that he would give them back on my return you may be sure i said that you will never see me here again the books will cover your expenditure of two sequins as to this rascal i am delighted as he cannot muster sufficient courage to come with me he would be in the way and the fellow is not worthy of sharing with father balby and myself the honours of so brave a flight that's true said the count provided that he does not congratulate himself to-morrow i asked the count to give me pens ink and paper which he possessed in spite of the regulations to the contrary, for such prohibitions were nothing to Lawrence, who would have sold St. Mark himself for a crown. I then wrote the following letter, which I gave to Soradaki, not being able to read it over, as I had written it in the dark. I began by a fine heading, which I wrote in Latin, which in English would run thus, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Our lords of state are bound to do all in their power to keep a prisoner under the leads, and on the other hand the prisoner, who is fortunately not on parole, is bound also to make his escape. Their right to act thus is founded on justice, while the prisoner follows the voice of nature, and since they have not asked him whether he will be put in prison, so he ought not to ask them leave to escape. Jacques Casanova, writing in the bitterness of his heart, knows that he may have the ill-luck to be recaptured before he succeeds in leaving the Venetian territory and escaping to a friendly state. But if so, he appeals to the humanity of the judges not to add to the misery of the condition from which, yielding to the voice of nature, he is endeavouring to escape. He begs them, if he be taken, to return him whatever may be in his cell, but if he succeed, he gives the whole to Francis Soradaki, who is still a captive for want of courage to escape, not like me preferring liberty to life. Casanova entreats their excellencies not to refuse the poor wretch this gift. 
dated an hour before midnight, in the cell of Count Askin, on October 31st, 1756. I warned Soradaki not to give this letter to Lawrence, but to the secretary in person, who, no doubt, would interrogate him if he did not go himself to the cell, which was the more likely course. The Count said my letter was perfect, but that he would give back all my books if I returned. The fool said he wished to see me again to prove that he would return everything gladly. But our time had come. The moon had set. I hung the half of the ropes by Father Balby's neck on one side and his clothes on the other. I did the same to myself, and with our hats and our coats off we went to the opening. Equindiusimo a rimirar le stelle. Dante. End of chapter 29. Recording by Christopher Most.